approximate what that would cost the family. And uh, she came up with the number. It was $727. Now, to some of us, that sounds like a whole lot of money. To others here, it doesn't sound like that much money. But this was in the late 60s. I did a calculation. $727 in 1967 is equivalent to $5,465 in 2018. So you get, you get the idea, and this is for the basic necessities. How are we going to live? And so dad, pastor, comes home and sees mom just wailing and crying uh, about this need that they have. And dad grabs her hands, and they pray together. They kneel, and they seek God's face. And they're, they're broken, they're anxious, but they're also doing their best to believe in the God who he said, God called me to this thing. God, take care of us here. And so uh, later that day, uh, his dad goes to the post office to get their mail. There's one letter in the mail. He recognizes the name on the front. It's a couple from California. He knew their name, but he had never met them. He opens the uh, envelope, and there's a very short letter. And the letter reads... Recently, my wife and I sold a business that we'd had for years. The business was delivering milk to families. Some of y'all remember that. The milkman would come. Amen? Said, after years, we decided to sell the business, and we made a profit of $7,270 on the business, and the Lord put it on our heart that we should tithe that money. And for some strange reason, you and your wife came to our mind Here's a check for $727. God met the need exactly. Now, I could tell stories. I'm going to tell a couple of my family, but many of you could tell story after story of how God has kept you, maybe not with a check for the exact amount, but in hundreds of different ways, how God has watched over you, how God has kept you. Amen. I could tell you tons of stories. I'll, I'll bring it down to one with, with my wife and I. We're at a point after I was pastoring the first church I was pastoring, and I knew uh, I resigned from the position. And so here we were. My wife was expecting our third child. Our landlord was about to uh, sell the house that we were living in, the only house we'd been in in Philadelphia. I was resigning, so I was losing my job. I was paid uh, in, in that church as a pastor, so there was no money, didn't know where we were going to live, and my identity was, was just ripped in shreds uh, in so many ways because of my idolatry of being a pastor. And so I was just a total mess. Where are we going to live? And I remember our landlord coming to us and saying, do you want this house? My answer was, we have no money. He said, I didn't ask you if you had money. I asked you, do you want this house? I said, yes, amen. We weren't into hashtags then, but I think I invented it. Hashtag, you betcha. I definitely want this house. And what he said was, listen, bro, I'll pay your closing costs. I'll, play, I'll pay your down payment. I'll do all of that. I want you to have this house. Praise God. Now, that's a big way, but there's a million little ways, and many of you could have story after story of how God has taken care of us. One of the things that as I think through stories like that over and over again, the story is never about our great financial expertise, about our wisdom and foresight, but the story is about a good God providing for his kids. That's what we're going to look at. That's what I believe God wants you to see today. Your heavenly Father loves you, and he wants you to trust him. that he will provide for you as his children. So let's stand together. And I want us to read from Matthew chapter 6. We're going to finish Matthew 6 today. I've, I don't know how many months I've been here. We've, we've gotten through two chapters now. Amen. So we'll get through Matthew 6 today. So this is a longer than normal reading for us, but I want to read it with gusto as we look at Matthew 6, 
19 through 34. So let's read God's word together. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is the the eye of the lamp. Excuse me, let's read that again. I messed it up. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be giving to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Somebody should say amen. Amen. I know that's good. Sometimes just reading the word, that's all you need. But but I'm going to preach on it anyway. So the title for today is A Lifestyle of Radical trust. Stand for just a second. If you're still standing, you don't have to stand up again, but I want to pray. See the pray and then sit down. That's, that's what we do. But let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, for the encouragement that we have through your word and by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that today that you will work in such a way that we as your people would trust you more as our good, good father that loves us and cares for his own. Lord, keep our minds from distraction. and Help us, Lord God, to hear what you want to say to us today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The main idea of the passage today is, is a simple one. The main idea is simply this. Disciples are those who seek after the things of God and trust God to provide for their earthly needs. We seek after the things of God and trust God to provide for our earthly needs. There's two main points and then a summary point here today that I want us to look at as we walk through these verses. First of all, the first point is disciples. Seek after the things of God. And as Jesus is teaching this to his disciples, he gives three ways in which disciples seek after the things of God. The first one is in verses 
19 through 21. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21 is the summary of this first part. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The idea here is that disciples of Jesus Christ are those who specifically store up their treasures not on earth, but in heaven. Disciples are those who are not transfixed on the things of the earth in such a way that that is where their value is. And as Jesus is speaking these words to these disciples, they would know exactly what he was talking about in terms of people storing their treasures in a place where moth and rust could destroy or where thieves could break in and steal. There were no banks out there back in the day, in the first century, but people would find the best place in their house where they could store things, usually a middle room in the center of the house where they would store anything and everything that had value. But Jesus is saying, with even with that, that the things that you store there can be stolen. Thieves can break in and steal. And then moths can destroy certain things. And I like the NIV says vermin. We're talking about rats, y'all. I don't know about anybody anybody else here. I can deal with mice, but when I see a rat, I'm like, oh, Jesus, help me. He says vermin come in and moths come in and thieves come in and all these things can happen. And as much as you value these things, you can lose them. Any earthly treasure that we have is subject to loss, Jesus says. And so what he's saying is, if your mindset is is on earthly treasures, that is your goal. That's what gives you hope. That's what motivates your life. He says, you're going to lose on that because your life will be full of one grief after another grief after another grief because all these things will be gone. You don't take any of it with you. Amen? So Jesus is letting us know that all these things eventually will be destroyed. Only, he's saying, only your heavenly treasures, the things of God, have full immunity from destruction. Those things will last forever. So again, that summary statement where your treasure is, that's where your heart is will be also a lifestyle of radical trust. Disciples are those who seek after God. Now, secondly, verses 22 and 23 give a second example of this. They say, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? Now, I don't know about anyone else, but as I was reading these verses in their context, it was hard for me initially to see the exact connection between verses 22 and 23 and the verses before them and after them. It was a little more difficult. The end, again, of verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. The end of verse 25 or 24 after that, you can not serve both God and money. You can see the definite connection between those two things. But it was a little harder for me to understand. Now he's talking about the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, one thing. If they're not healthy, another thing. What are you getting at? It's interesting. Uh, actually, in, in the Greek text of verse 22, R says in the NIV, the eye is the lamp of the body. The word order is different in the Greek text. It says the lamp of the body is the eye. It it, it prioritizes the predicate, the lamp, above the subject. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to see that what's important here is the way into your life is through this lamp called your eye. In other words, he is letting us know that how your heart 
begins to treasure something and have affection for something is because your eye, the lamp of your body, gets fixated on it. What are you fixated on? The eye is the lamp of the body. And so, as I was studying these verses, it was really helpful for me to look at two words in particular. You can put up that next slide. Um, that was very helpful for me to understand what was going on. In verse 22, you have the word healthy. Your eyes are healthy. Your whole body is full of light. And then in verse 23, the word unhealthy. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. What is he talking about in these verses? What is healthy versus unhealthy? Well, first of all, I want to look at the word healthy that he uses there. Um, the Greek word is aplus. Tell someone, ask someone, are you aplus? No, you don't have to do that. <laughs> the word means healthy. Um, it, it's translated healthy here, but the primary meaning of that word is single-minded or generous. The word is used in Romans chapter 12 and verse 8 when he talks about if your gift is giving, then he says give Aplus, give generously. It's used in James, the first chapter and the fifth verse, where uh, he's saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives aplus. He gives generously. Ask of God. This word is talking about generosity. Now what you see in the NIV is that these two words are juxtaposed to each other. They are opposites, healthy versus unhealthy. But when we see that the primary meaning here of aplus is to be generous, single-minded in your generosity, willing to give things away, not hoarding what you've been blessed with, but easily giving it away, then the primary meaning of Tony Ross, the word that's translated unhealthy, is evil, faulty, or worthless. It's the word that's used in the Lord's Prayer when he says uh, keep, to keep us from temptation and lead us not to evil or the evil one. Same word used there, Pony Ross. You can go back to that slide again. Stay on that slide. So it's the same word. So if, if this evilness, this faultiness, or this worthlessness is being compared with generosity then what is faulty generosity? It is being stingy or ungiving. If you look, if you have an NIV, it's in the footnotes of the NIV that these words mean generosity and stinginess. And so I think for me, that helps me to understand what's going on here. We treasure things in such a way that if we treasure them in an ungodly way, they become life to us. But if we understand that our God is the source of life, even the, the lamp of the, of the body is the eye, we can be generous. We don't have our hearts and minds fully set on the things of this world, but on the things of God. Now, if you'll notice in the upper left-hand corner of that slide, some of you might know what that is. And many of you won't. That is what is called the evil eye. Who, who's ever heard of the evil eye? Okay, when I put in my phone, I, was, I, I tested this, messaging on my phone, and I wrote evil eye, that's the emoji that came up. Evil eye. Evil eye is an idea that we have records of that starting a thousand years before Abraham in Sumerian culture. It's all over cultures all over the world, and it's in our culture. For goodness sake, there's an emoji for it. The idea of the evil eye is stinginess. It's used in Matthew chapter 20. I have the uh, pertinent part of that verse on the board. But in Matthew chapter 20, there's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And you'll remember in that parable... There are workers who came early in the morning and got put to work. Those who came at midday and got put to work. And those who came at the very end of the day with only an hour left and they were put to work. 
And you remember in that parable that the landowner begins to pay the folks. And first come those who just work for an hour, and he, pulls, he gives them a full day's wage. And the people who worked all day said, yeah, this is going to be good. He gave them a full day's wage. What are we going to get? And he gives everybody the same thing. And they're angry. Now, they agreed to that wage at the beginning of the day, but they expected more because of the generosity of giving more to those who only worked an hour. But in that verse, the landowner says, don't I have the right to use what I want with my own money, to do what I want with my own money? Or here he says, or are you envious? Literally, the terminology in that verse is, is your eye evil? It's the same terminology from Matthew 6. This idea of the evil eye is the idea that I look at others with jealousy, that I look at others with envy. And so people all around the world are very afraid many times of the evil eye. And that's why they wear little amulets like that or put things like that in various places to beware of and to ward off the evil eye. It's a talisman that people use. But the idea here of the evil eye is an envious or a, a, a spirit that is jealous of what others have. And so what Jesus is saying here is that disciples live with single-minded generosity. We are people who are generous, can easily give things away. So finally, not only are disciples store up treasures in heaven and live with single-minded generosity, but thirdly, in verse 24, disciples are devoted to one master. One master. Verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We've all heard that. We've heard the other uh, verses on that as well. The, the people that Jesus is speaking to would understand this probably better than we get it when he says, you cannot serve, you can only serve, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. In, in the Roman context in Palestine and in the Roman Empire, uh, historians believe that up to one-third of the people that lived there were enslaved in one way or another. So slavery was everywhere in that context. And Jesus is speaking. And so when he says you cannot serve two masters, people get it. If you have a master, that is the one that you have to listen to. That is the one who, whose orders you receive. That is the one that you must please. And anyone else that wants something from you, if that doesn't line up with what your master says, then you, you've got to knock that uh, away. You can't do that. You must please the master that you have. And Jesus is saying that God is that master. You can't serve both God and money. You can't do it. We live in a day and an age where we see that trying to be done over and over and over again. And sadly, to me it's not sad when people that don't claim to know Jesus make their life all about money. They need Jesus. But when people who say that Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my master, and yet we build our whole world around money and material things, there's a disconnect there. There's a miss. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And then he says, Some people eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Brothers and sisters, money and material things cannot be your master if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to deal with money. We have to interact with it. We've got a plan and all of those things. But be careful that it begins to become your master. So here's a couple of questions just to 
to think about in that regard, in what ways do money, or one question, in what ways do money and worldly concerns tempt you to transfer your loyalty away from your heavenly Father? We can get so embedded in these things and forget that we're here to serve one master. Now let's look at the rest of these verses here, starting at verse 25. The second main point for today is this. Disciples trust God to provide for their earthly needs. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? But we all know how hard that can be. In difficult times, to really trust that God is for us. And so what Jesus does here is, first of all, he uses two examples from nature of how God provides extravagant care in nature. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. And he says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? The first example, he says, is from birds. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Birds don't sow. They haven't been to agriculture school. They don't know how to till the land. They don't know how to plant anything. They don't know how to irrigate water. They don't know how to do that. I remember growing up in the country, and we had a big backyard, and when it would rain, I was always interested when it would rain, the worms would come out of the ground in the backyard, and we had robins, lots of robins uh, that in, our, in our area. And they would always come down, and when it rained, they'd, they'd see those worms coming out, and they'd eat up the worms. Listen, birds don't know anything about animal husbandry or worm farming. They just know that when God sends the rain, it's time to eat some worms. Amen? And the scripture says God takes care of them. They're not worrying about what to eat. The idea is they're not working for this. They don't plant anything, but God takes care of them. And then he goes on to use the example in verse 28 of flowers. Verse 28, he says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. That's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, tomorrow thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Some of you are going down to the flower show at some point in the next week or so. My wife saw that on TV last night said, we should go to the flower show. And I'm thinking, are there some ladies that want to go with my wife to the flower show? <laughs> you got it, Will. You got it. You know what I'm talking about. We're, we're right there. Um, but maybe I'll go down to the flower show. It's not necessarily my thing. But, but going to the flower show, looking at God's creation and what he does and the splendor of what God does is amazing. And he says, these plants, they can't, they don't know what they're doing. They don't spin. They've never been to a shop to find just the right fabric. They haven't been to, to, to fashion school or beauty school. They don't know how to read GQ or any other magazine. And yet God arrays them in this beautiful way that blows away even the greatest king that we've ever known, Solomon. They're more beautiful and more glorious than the greatest king of Israel. He says, look, God takes care of his people. I love the fact that he emphasizes this in verse 26 and verse 30 when he says, are you not much more valuable than they? And then in verse 30, will he not much more clothe you? We serve a much more God. You are created in the image and likeness of God. He has come into this world to redeem you from your sin. He calls you to himself as, your son, as his son, as his daughter, and he loves you with an eternal love. How will he not much more take care of you? God wants us to know that we serve a much more God. 
And so we see in these verses that worry is replaced by simple trust in God. Look at this. He uses the term worry over and over again. In verse 25, do not worry about your life. In verse 27, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Verse 28, and why do you worry? Verse 31, so do not worry. Verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow. He says that all this worrying is getting you absolutely nowhere. Trusting God is a defining mark of the lives of disciples. Love the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I love this in verse 7. He says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Now look to what he says. He says, it will guard your minds and it will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. God sets up a guard against, uh, against all the thoughts that the enemy would bring when instead of living in constant anxiety, we give it over to God with thanksgiving and prayer. Much more, we have a much more God. He wants to take care of us. I love that phrase in in verse 7 of Philippians 4, the peace of God, he says. In Romans chapter 5, we we learn that we've been justified by faith in God, and therefore, he says, you have peace with God. In Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. What does that mean? God is no longer alienated from us. We're no longer his enemy, and we have peace with God. In other words, God is no longer coming after you with wrath or with judgment. Now you are his child. You have been justified, declared not guilty, and you belong to him, and you're his child. But the emphasis is different in Philippians chapter 4. Now he says, and we have the peace of God, not peace with God, Romans 5.1, but now peace of God. In other words, the peace that God himself has because he is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the one who has everything under control. He says, I want you to have my peace. I want you to know what it is not to have to worry every day about everything. God calls his disciples away from a life of worry and fear to a life of trust. Disciples don't have to live life scared. God is able and God is willing. I want to think about this in terms of the 21st century because we're dealing with different issues than they dealt with in the first century, although some of the things are the same. Last week I was with my dad and... He always, my dad's 88, every time I get together with him, he'll pull out an album, a photo album, and want to show me things. The same things. Every time. (laughs) Over and over again. But he's showing me through one of these albums, and he was an engineer. Uh, He worked as a civil servant with the Air Force for many, many years. And he shows me this picture of this room, this large room, probably at least as big as this room, with a computer in the 1950s, right? And so the whole room is the computer. There's lights everywhere. There's buttons everywhere. There's there's reel-to-reel tapes everywhere. There's uh, uh, wires going all over the place. This is a computer. And I'm just thinking, I don't have my cell phone with me, but what we now have at our hands on a cell phone can do more than that big computer could do in the 1950s. We've got more information at our hands. And that sounds so good. Wow, we have all these modern conveniences. And at the same time, I don't know if anybody else feels like me. If I could get rid of my cell phone, I would be one happy dude. Because there was a time when you left work and work was left. But now you can be communicated with through email, through text, through... And, and I'm not complaining about it, but I'm just thinking life has gotten complicated. They didn't have a mortgage in the first century. You built your house. 
Now we have mortgages and insurance payments. When I watch sports on TV, it sounds like every other commercial is on insurance. Progressive and State Farm and Geico and over and over again. It's about insurance. Why? Because we're scared that something will happen and we'll lose our stuff. And so every other commercial is saying, we, we got your back, we got your back. God is saying here, I've got your back. Still get insurance though. Don't, don't read me the wrong way. Still get your insurance. We have all these modern things that cause us anxiety. Jesus is saying, don't worry. Look at verse 31 and 32. He says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. The Heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. He says the, the pagans run after these things. It's interesting. Matthew uses the same word. Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 28, 19, where he says, go, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. The word there is ethnos. All the peoples, all the people groups. He uses the same word here in verse 32 for the pagans, the ethnos. People who are outside of the community of God's people, he says, they run after these things. These things are life to them. I've got to have it. I need it so bad. And we've all felt that way at different times about different things in life. This, if I just get this thing, then I'll be happy. He says the pagans, the ethnos, run after all these things. Don't be like them. God has designed you in such a way that whatever you get in this world will not satisfy. It cannot satisfy. God has designed you in such a way that at the end of all things, you're only going to be satisfied in Him. And praise be to God for that. So here's two questions for us. What are you running after? The pagans run after these things. What are you running after to find life? It could be material things. It could be a relationship. It could be a lot of different things. Reputation. What are you running after where you think if you overtake that, now I get life? And then number two, is your life marked by a progressively deeper trust in God? None of us is all the way home on this. <laughs> None of us has made it there. But our, is your life moving in a direction where you're finding that trusting God is, is something that is more natural to you than just sitting and languishing in worry and doubt? Is your life marked by a progressively deeper trust in God? I do have a, a third point here today from verses 33 and 34, which kind of wraps all this up and says disciples are focused on the kingdom of God. Disciples are focused on the kingdom of God. Look at verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Many of you have that verse memorized. But all of us are in slow class in living it out. Amen. It's easy to memorize it, but Lord, help me to live this thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The first part of that verse is the focus on what disciples do with their lives. They are those who seek his kingdom and his righteousness. You cannot seek the kingdom of God without also seeking his righteousness. Jesus has talked a lot about that in the Beatitudes and in other parts of this Sermon on the Mount. To seek the kingdom of God is to seek the king, and to seek the king is to seek to walk in a way that honors him. We walk with him. And so this idea of seeking the kingdom of God, that's an imperative from Jesus. In other words, that's a command. It's not a, it might be a good idea for you to seek the kingdom, but no, this is an imperative from the king. Seek first. Above all, kingdom of God 
And it's in the present tense in Greek, which, is, which means it's something that you do over and over again. It is something that is the all-day, everyday preoccupation of your life. You're a God seeker. You're a kingdom and righteousness seeker. That's what a disciple is growing in. But this is humbling for us. Think about your typical day. Is it characterized by seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? When you wake up, when you get ready for work or for school, when you go about your day, when you're in the middle of work or school, when you're figuring out what you're going to do for entertainment or for food or you're shopping or you're doing chores or you're doing whatever, is your mindset characterized as one who is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or have we compartmentalized God in our lives? See, what, what Jesus is talking about is a preoccupation with God versus a compartmentalization of God. I went to church on Sunday. I'm going to my home group. I did my devotions in the morning. I check off my God boxes, and God says, I don't want your boxes. I'm going to bust out of every box because I want to be involved in every part of your life. There is nothing that is off limits from me. This is the gospel that Jesus is teaching us here. Preoccupation versus compartmentalization. And the second part of the verse, the first part of this verse that we just looked at is God saying, here's what I want you to do. The second part is God saying, now here's what I am going to do. Here's what I'll do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. He doesn't say you've got to seek after them. You've got to fight for them. You've got to prioritize this. He says, I, your heavenly father, am going to take care of you. I will take care of you. What a blessed promise that we have from God. Just as he took care of the birds, just as he took care of the flowers, and he is the much more God, he says, I will take care of you as well. Then let's look at this final verse, verse 34. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, somebody ought to say amen with that. I love the fact that Jesus includes this last verse here, that God gives us this verse because we can come away with some idealized view that I'm just about the things of God all the time and my life is going to be easy and those flowers of the field that are out there, I'm just skipping through them every day. He said, no. <laughs> No, that's not it. Every day's got enough trouble of its own. It's funny, Paul who writes Philippians 4 is the same Paul that writes Philippians 2. So in verse, in chapter 4, we just read the verse, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But in chapter 2 of Philippians, in verse 28, he talks about sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. And he says, I want to send him so that you'll be glad to see him, and so that my anxiety will be relieved. Paul's a man like us. And so I love the fact that Jesus includes this. This is a reality check for us. Life is full of trouble and difficulty. God never promised you won't go through the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, you will at various times in life. But praise be to God, in that great Psalm 23, he says, Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? For you are with me. How? Your rod and, they staff, and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in your house forever. You're going to go through hard things, but God is with you in the hardest of the hard things. God will never leave you or forsake you. What does God want us to know from all of this 
that we've looked at today, it's simple. God wants you to know this. God is ready. God is willing. And God is able to provide for every need that you will ever have. God is saying to every person here who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and who desires to follow him, God is saying to you, trust me. Trust me. A lot of people in this world are saying, trust me. And they're not worthy of trust. But I want you to know that your heavenly father is. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is worthy of your trust. Philippians 419, he says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God doesn't say, I'll provide all of your needs according to your educational background, your family history, your earning potential, and your educational attainment. He says, no, I'll provide according to my riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He safeguards it all. I love Psalm 84 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the one who trusts in you. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we are becoming people who radically trust in the goodness of our God. I'm going to close with this. Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham yet again. He come to him before and made a great promise to Abram, but nothing had happened yet. He promised him that he'd have children like the sands of the, she- of the seashore, like the stars of the heavens, and yet Abram these years later still does not have a child of his own. But God comes to Abram with these words, He says that, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Then he asks Abram, what do you want? And Abram says, well, you told me already that I'd have a son. But all these years later, I still don't have a son. And my heir is someone who's been born in my household, but not a son. Lord, God, give me a son. And the Bible says, a famous verse, Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed God. God said, yes. He said, Abram believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. But then this story takes on a weird twist. God comes to Abram and tells him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a heifer, which is a young cow. I want you to get a goat, and I want you to get a ram. And I want you to take these animals and... You need to kill them, and then you need to cut them right down the middle. Most of us would be like, okay, God, this better be you. I want you to cut them right down the middle. Then I want you to lay them out in a particular design where they can be walked through the middle. Some of you remember this story. Abram does exactly what God tells him to do. He kills these animals. He splits them in two. He lays them out before the Lord and then the ravens come and they're trying to eat the carcasses of these dead animals and uh, Abram is shooing them away and getting rid of them but in the course of time Abram falls into a deep sleep but then the Bible says he sees a vision in in verse 17 of chapter 15 and he sees this vision of a smoking fire pot going through those carcasses going right down the middle with a torch a flaming torch then in verse 18 Bible says, and then God said, the Lord said, today I make a covenant with you, Abram. And in the language of making a covenant in Hebrew means to cut a covenant. That is the literal translation of the word. I want to cut a covenant with you. The practice of the ancient Sumerians and other ancient Near Eastern civilizations was to do what we saw in in, in Genesis 15 when you make a covenant with a great king and a vassal that, that they would have the animals that were torn asunder in two and put to the side and that you would walk through those animals 
And by doing that, what you're saying is, if I don't live up to the covenant, let the curse that's happened to these animals happen to me. That's what the... That's what it meant. That's what the custom was. And so Abram sees the Lord himself in this flaming fire pot and in this torch go through. But Abram never walks through. God makes a covenant with Abram and he says to him, I will take the curse on myself. You can't take it on because there's no way you're going to live up to your end of the bargain. And we learn in Genesis 3 and verse 13 that Jesus Christ has become a curse for us. The Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The idea is that the God who has made a covenant to love us and care for us and told us to follow after him understands that because of our weakness and frailty, we're not going to make it all the way. But he says, I have become the curse for you so that I am the one who fulfills every part of the covenant. This is a God we can trust. Whenever anyone is struggling and they come to me about their faith, I just want to tell them, we don't need to get into all these apologetics over here and over there. Let's look at this person named Jesus. Look at what he has done. And when you see Jesus, you understand God. Brothers and sisters, that means we can trust him. You can trust him. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you are the trustworthy God. You are the much more God. Where we see beautiful things in this world, all over this world. Sunsets, flowers, we look in space, the majesty of the universe, as we look through a microscope at an atom or at, at, at a cell, all the intricacies of every cell in creation, Lord, we are blown away. You are the majestic and mighty God. But Lord, we are blown away even more by the fact that you would love us. Even us. Our frailties may be hidden from others. Many times our frailties are even hidden from us. We've learned how to lie to ourselves and present ourselves in just such a way. But you know it all, O oh God. And you love us anyway. Lord, I pray that we will grow as men and women, as young people who are marked by trusting our good, sovereign, and perfect God. Be with us, we pray, in all these things.